This is The Guardian. Today, the second of three episodes uncovering the adoption scandal that was buried in Bangladesh five decades ago, but is still shattering lives across the world. If you haven't listened to episode one, please go back and listen to that and then come back to this one. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm all right. What time is it where you are? It's um, it's about 2.30 p.m. Teslima Begum and Rosie Swash have been investigating what Bibi Hassanar told us back in the Netherlands. Bibi believes she was taken from her mother in Bangladesh and that she wasn't the only child ripped away from her family to be adopted abroad. How did it go uh, yesterday? What did you get up to? Oh, oh my God, where do I start? It was probably the most intense day of my time here so far. Teslima was already on the ground in Bangladesh when Rosie got hold of a list of mothers who say their children were taken from them. She sent it straight to Teslima, but they knew the chances of finding the women were slim. Had they moved on from Tongi? Were they even still alive? So yesterday I visited Tongi, which is um, just on the outskirts of Dhaka. And this is obviously one of the key areas where a lot of these babies have gone missing. So I've like, started knocking on a few doors. After three or four knocks, I eventually reach a house and I knock on the door and a young, a young woman opens the door. And I ask if the woman named on the document still lives at this house. And she says, yes, wait for a second. And then she calls her by the name. And it's the name that's on the document. And suddenly this very elderly woman appears. Oh, oh my goodness. And it's her. And I ask her, is this your name? And she says, yes, that's me. I had my child taken. From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, the mothers who say their children were taken. Rosie, before we hear more about Teslima's extraordinary discoveries in Bangladesh, let's talk about the man who helped her find that mother, Dr. Jack Prager. Now, he was a British doctor who volunteered in Bangladesh in the 1970s and he had tried to help Bibi's mother and others like her who say their children were taken from them. Can you tell me about meeting him? 
we were really concerned that we weren't going to be able to find this man. He's elderly. We didn't know if he was still alive. We didn't know where in the world he was working. All we knew is that he was no longer in Bangladesh. Um, and to our surprise, we managed to track him down. He's living in a small town in England. And better than that, he was willing to speak to us. Well, my name is Jack Prager. Originally, I'm a nice Yiddish boy from Manchester and grew up with the Manchester Guardian in the good old days. His is a really incredible story. He was raised Jewish in Manchester, became a farmer, and then says that sometime in his 30s, he was struck by, I guess you would call it divine intervention, heard the voice of God, converted to Christianity, retrained as a doctor. Big decade. Yeah, big decade. (laughs) And then not long after that, heard a radio appeal for medical assistance and help in Bangladesh. I heard an appeal by an Irish charity, Concern, for nurses and doctors of Bangladesh, and I started with them. What was it like in Bangladesh in 1972 when you arrived? It was horrific. The conditions in those camps was really horrific, indescribable. You could still see that it still has a huge effect on him to think about what he saw there. Through his medical work, he ended up working with a number of organisations. By 1975, he was actually working at some points with Ted Dahm. So Jack Prager was working for the aid organisation Ted Dahm Netherlands, who we'll sometimes refer to as TDH in this episode. At what point did he first hear rumours that children were going missing? Well, he told me that around 74 and into 75, when he was working with Tedham, that a colleague had started to pass on to him rumours that they'd heard. I worked for Tedham Netherlands and was told by one of their staff about this traffic in children, that they were collecting children and the actual mothers then lost their children. At the time, there was famine in the country. The country was ravaged in lots of different ways that he simply didn't have the bandwidth to take on these allegations. We were dealing with famine victims and absolutely overwhelmed. But then in 77, the mothers started to come to me knowing that I had worked for Charities Home Netherlands By 1977, he was operating a clinic in Dhaka, and he describes hearing a commotion outside the window. I remember it very clearly. Two of them came, and they were on the road in front of our clinic, and they were shouting and screaming and rolling in the dust. And I looked down from a balcony and next to me was a Belgian volunteer nurse. And she said to me, what are you going to do for these women? And I said to her, if I help them, I'll be finished. But I did help them, and I was finished. He brings them in and speaks to them and they tell him this story that 
they were approached by men or a man claiming to work for Terre de Homme who told them that their children could be given free temporary care and provided with medical care, shelter, food and education, all things that were in the Dataparra camp almost impossible to secure for your children and that they could come back and see their children at the weekend and that those children had since disappeared and they were understandably in a terrible way. They told him that they had gone to the authorities, that nothing had happened, and that they had turned to him almost with no other thought of where to go. And he, at that time, would have been a very well-known, respected figure as somebody connected to figures of authority, but with a benevolent cause. After some of them protested, they were visited by gangsters, hired thugs, some with guns, and told to stop protesting about the loss of their children. That's so devastating. I mean, not only were these women saying that their children had been taken from them, they were then threatened by thugs. Obviously, Jack Prager was deeply concerned, but Rosie, what could he do to raise the alarm on what was happening? He tried the obvious routes. He went to the Bangladesh authorities. He wouldn't stop telling anybody who would listen what was going on. He told the press. He went to the Daily Telegraph, amongst others. Le Monde ran an article on his allegations. So he, of course, also tried to go to Terre de Homme. Terre de Homme tried to avoid doing anything. After I was deported, they invited me to The Hague. And they made me an offer. If I stopped publicising this illegal traffic involving their organisation, they told me that their fundraising was suffering heavily as a result of this adverse publicity in Holland. They would set me up in a clinic in Calcutta and pay the running costs for a year if I would stop publicising the traffic. The stick and then the carrot. Unfortunately, <laughs> I felt unable to accept the very kind offer. Rosie, that's quite the interview that you had with Jack Prager. And I wonder, how did you feel leaving his that day? Well, I was very excited because we had a list of names. On those affidavits was a notary stamp from the legal firm who represented those mothers and in some cases the addresses, although the addresses were very basic so I wasn't convinced that they would be particularly helpful. Taslima was in Bangladesh at the time and I passed on what I had to her, sent her scans of the documents and said why don't you try and find the law firm and see if you can find out who represented these mothers and what happened to them. And maybe we might be able to hear from one of the mothers. But I certainly wasn't expecting her to be able to find any of those mothers. It's 8.30am and I've just arrived in Tongi. I'm just walking into the area of Arshad Nagar, where the camp used to be. So following the Liberation War, the government started setting up refugee camps one of these was the Datapara camp, which was based in Tongi. 
TDH alongside other aid organisations. They were providing aid on the ground. They were providing health services. As I'm walking now, I can see substandard shelters built on weak infrastructure that looks like they're still occupied by families. I remembered Jack Prager's list, which Rosie had sent me, um, and I had a copy of it in my bag. So I pulled the papers out of my bag and it occurred to me that these houses may well still be there and the mothers may well still be living in them. So what did you do next? I started from the top of the list. I made my way to that road and I started knocking on some doors. I think it was probably by the third or fourth door when I knocked on a door and the name that I gave was answered. Assalamu alaikum. Itaki Siron Bibir Pasha? A young lady opened and I asked her if this was Sayron Nissa's house. I wasn't expecting what would happen next. Um, the young girl called out Sayron Nissa's name. An elderly woman with grey hair wrapped in a sari appeared. So I asked her, are you Sayron Nissa? And she said, yes, that's me. And then she asked, who are you? And I said, I'm a reporter and um, I'm just looking to speak to some mothers who I know had their children taken. I showed her the list that I had in my hand and I asked her if that was her name and if she had somebody taken and she said yes that's my name on the list and my child was taken from me. So she welcomed you in and you I guess you sat down and spoke to her. What on earth was that meeting like? What did she tell you? It was heart-wrenching. There were tears. Sayron Nissa said that in 1977, she was at home taking care of her six-year-old son and her sick husband when there was a knock at the door. She opened it to find two representatives from the charity TDH. They basically told her about a new children's program that they were rolling out in the area. Through this program, her child would be clothed, would be housed, would be educated. Um, all things that she wasn't in a position to provide at that moment for her child. She was hesitant at first, but when I asked her, she said that she was familiar with TDH because they had a big presence in the camp. So she trusted them. Actually, at the time, her husband was very sick and he was unable to work and um, Sayron wasn't working either. She said that they were very, very poor. There were days where um, they struggled to eat. She said there were days where her son wasn't fed and um, when this opportunity came to her, even though she was unsure about enrolling her child into this school, her and her husband decided that it might be a good idea because it would mean that her child was in a safe environment and she could then work. So that was the agreement that they came to. Crucial detail, 
they basically said to her, you can see your child every weekend. He's only down the road from you. He will be at the TDH school, basically like a, a five minute walk from her house. She could see him on the weekend, she, he would be taken care of, and in that time she could work. And when she had saved up enough, she could have him back. And so she and her husband have this conversation. They agree that it's probably best for their six-year-old son. What happens next? So a week later, she brings her son to the TDH building. She went there thinking that they might show her around. They might, you know, tell her a bit more about the program. But at the gate, somebody took her child from her and they said she can leave now. Oh, wow. So what did she do? Like, she was upset. She basically told the woman, I can come back another day if it's better, I can actually bring some of his things with him. The woman responded that we have everything that your son could need and she just took the child. The following weekend, Seyron returned to the school and she was told by a woman at the gate that her son was no longer there. She was so confused. She said, what do you mean my son's not here? Like, what have you done with my baby? She was then told that her son had been transferred to another school, which was the TDH headquarters in Dhaka. So she gathered what little money she had and she jumped onto a rickshaw and she made her way to, to Dhaka. She arrives confused and exhausted, not knowing where the hell her son is. And now when she arrives at the headquarters, she demanded to speak to somebody and the guard told her to go away. He said, there's nobody here for you to speak to. And she said that she waited over an hour until a TDH officer um, had been called from inside to come out to speak to her. And he came to the gate and he told her, just go home. Like, there's nothing for you here. And when she refused, she says that the guard pointed a gun in her face. So he basically threatened to kill her if she doesn't go. And she was so terrified, she says that she didn't know what to do. And eventually, like it had gotten dark, so she went home. Um, she went home and she told her husband what had happened. Then the next day, they went to the police station to file a report for her missing son. And, and what happened as a result of that police report? Did Sarah then become reunited with her child? No, she says um, days turned into weeks. They would turn up and they would learn no progress had been made. They would be directed to other places in the city. They kept going back. She kept going back to the school as well. And then one day, somebody at the school offered her a job. 
She says that she doesn't know if they were trying to silence her or not, but she thought it might be a good way to find out what had happened to her son. She did learn something. She learned from a colleague that a young group of local children had been sent abroad. She asked this woman if she knew if her son was among the group of young children that had been sent abroad, and the woman responded yes. And Seirun then describes fainting on the spot when she learned that. so distressing where did her child go where had he been sent so Saren learnt that her child had been taken to the Netherlands and he would have been among the first group of children to be taken to the Netherlands at that time Taslima it is so crushing to hear Sirenissa's story who does she hold responsible for what happened to her Saren clearly um, holds TDH accountable for what has happened She was quick to answer this question. I didn't have to probe. She says that the country director, Muslim Ali Khan, was involved. Before I left Sayron's house, I showed her the list and I asked her, do you recognise these women's names? And I read out the list of names to her and she told me who was still alive and who was dead. Fulzan Bibi? So it looks like actually more than half of the people on this list are still alive. So I think they would we would be able to locate them, which is promising. One of the mothers on the list is called Rezia Begum, and Sarah told me that she actually just lives around the corner. And she grabbed my hand and she was like, I can take you there. Like, you should speak to her because her story will shock you. And so you went and knocked on her door. What did she tell you? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. I'm a name Rezia Begum. I'm a unnishom. So Rezia Begum says that she also was approached in her home in 1977 by a representative from TDH offering to take her three-month-old daughter. But she politely declined. She was very sure that she did not want to give her child up, particularly because she was so young. But a week later, she says she was sitting alone in her living room, breastfeeding her baby. And when her baby had fallen asleep, she lay her down and went to the bathroom. She was gone for no longer than five minutes. And when she returned, her daughter was missing. Oh, my goodness. So just gone. She wasn't there where she had left her. Um, she started frantically looking for her to see like if she had fallen. There was just no sign of her. What was really heartbreaking about Rezia is it was like she was trying to convince me 
she kept saying to me I like I swear I was only gone for five minutes and that just really broke my heart and I said to her like this isn't your fault like clearly this is you don't have to justify anything to me but it was like she was still living in that memory she still lives in the same home so she pointed out she's like she was just sat there she was sat there and I was gone for five minutes and somebody had taken my baby who did she think had taken her baby? Rezio also cites TDH she thinks that those representatives that had knocked on her door a week earlier asking for her child, she is convinced they had come back and taken her child. The TDS Netherlands company is a company Netherlands. She also names one man. I met various other mothers that day who very vividly remember the last time they saw their children. One mother described a lullaby that she would frequently sing to her daughter and that she still hums that lullaby to herself to this day. I didn't just meet mothers, I also met various witnesses um, who had been there at that time. One of these was a woman named Sakina Begum, and she had been living in the area since it was the Datapara camp. Um, and she has a very clear recollection. She says that she remembers it like it was yesterday. Sakina only lives a few minutes away from the TDH building in Tongi. And she says that it was the summer of 1977 and she went to the bazaar early one morning when she heard a sudden commotion. Um, she described a group of people that had gathered outside the gates of the TDH building. So she walked over there to see what was going on. And by the time she had made her way to the front of the crowd, she could hear several mothers screaming and crying. And she says that there was a large truck full of children outside the building in Tongi. <laughs> And somebody in the crowd said that they were taking the children away. And the mothers were hysterical. They were screaming, shouting. Some of them were trying to scramble onto the truck. They were being pushed away. The children were also crying and holding out their arms to their mothers. But the mothers were pushed back and eventually that truck drove off. And Sakina says she couldn't believe what she was seeing. One of the mothers was her neighbour and a close friend and she tried to console her, but the truck quickly disappeared with the children and the women were just left sitting there in the dust. What Haslima discovered in Tongi that day was extraordinary. Hearing from the mothers for the first time, hearing how raw their pain still was, just 
breaks my heart. They were clear about who they blamed for their children being ripped away from them. Terdazom Netherlands. Teslima was horrified. But there was still work to do. I decided to go for a walk through the bazaar. And I remember this because there was a dog ahead of me and I, I'm terrified of dogs. When the dog like stopped, I paused as well to see what direction it might go in. And the dog has stopped outside a set of gates. The gates were closed. They're tall, dark, green. There was a lock on them. And I thought, this is a very odd place for this set of gates to be. It's bang in the middle of the bazaar. And on the left and right, there are tall walls. Then in front of those walls are shops. But that's exactly why you would miss it because there's like um, literally like an international money transfer shop on the left. On the right, there was an ice cream parlor. I had like this really weird feeling about this place and I started walking towards it. And there were like um, banners stuck up and one banner was so tall. It had like the like a smiling face of a local politician. Mm-hmm. And um, it was basically like hanging over these initials. And when I looked closely, I realized that the initials read TDH. TDH. Ted is on. Exactly. And it dawned on me that this was the exact building um, that we had heard several of our adoptees mention and talk about. Sleeper, what went through your mind at this point? You're suddenly confronted by what seems to be Ted Azom's headquarters in Tongi. I was stunned about the fact that this building still existed. So I just thought, oh my God, this tangible building is stood right in front of me. I started imagining what those mothers would have been like standing outside those gates, handing over their children. Okay, so I've managed to get to the other side of the gates and there doesn't seem to be anyone around here. There's a pathway in front of me leading to an ominous looking building. Some of the windows look boarded up and it's surrounded by these really tall trees. So suddenly it becomes very dark and at the end of this pathway is this building, this mysterious labyrinth-like building. Um, It's quite derelict. You can see some of the windows have been boarded up. Um, It's grey, there's paint peeling. It didn't look like it was being used for anything. And this building was basically the TDH school from the 1970s. This was probably the last place the Dutch adoptee Bibi we had met with in Amsterdam had been. A guard just suddenly appeared out of nowhere and basically said I needed permission to go inside. Um, He did let me get a bit closer to the building and have a little peek through one of the windows. I couldn't really see much. Um, It was pretty dark in there, a lot of cobwebs. Rosie and Taslima still had so many questions. Who could help shed light on what could have happened? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Rosie, the accounts we've heard from mothers are harrowing and they seem to follow a specific pattern. Did you speak to any experts who were able to throw some light on how this could have happened? I spoke to uh, a law professor called David N. Smollin. He calls it the laundering scam or boarding school scam. He says... The child laundering scheme includes deliberately recruiting children into the institution based on false pretenses. In other instances, the family, on its own initiative, places the child into the institution for temporary care or education, and then the child is laundered through the adoption system as an orphan, in um, inverted commas, and then adoptee. So he's identified that this is a model. When I spoke to him, he talked about Cambodia, Nepal, India, as all being countries where he has come across this. We're talking about really serious accusations around child laundering here. Now, the mothers say that the people who showed up at their door claimed to be working for Terdes Om Netherlands, an established international charity that was providing aid in Bangladesh at the time. What can we actually say about how they fit into all of this? At this stage, we knew that the mums believed TDH had been involved in their children being taken, as did Jack Prager and Bibi also thought that. We also knew that Taslima had located the children's home in the centre of Tongi, but we knew we had to reach out and put these allegations directly to TDH and find out if they could shed any light on these historic adoptions. And three out of the five mums Taslima met in Tongi mentioned Muslim Ali Khan and that this man was involved in their children being taken. How does he fit into all of this? So none of the mums that Taslima spoke to actually remember him being present when their children were taken. They don't identify him as being part of those TDH Netherlands employees who came to their house. But the fact that his name kept being mentioned made him very much a person of interest to us to speak to, especially because he was country director at the time and bought overall responsibility for what was happening at that organisation. Well, what did Jack Prager have to say about all of this? 
How did he explain it to you? What Jack believes is that there were people who were working together in this, for want of a better word, adoption ring. There was uh, an investigation, apparently by the Bangladesh government in 1979 into Prager's allegations and they found those accusations to be false and baseless. And not long after, Prager was presented with a very high bill for a visa to continue his work in Bangladesh, which he could not meet, and he was deported soon after. And my fate was sealed. I didn't get a visa. I got a deportation order. Muslim Ali Khan, he told me very emphatically, you are finished. And when you are thrown out, all you can do is raise a big shout and that'll be the end of it. It has been half a century since Jack Prager first tried to help these mothers who had their children taken from them. He wanted the authorities to take action. That didn't happen. All this time later, what is his hope? His number one hope is that the mothers are reunited with their children. I'd like the um, remainder of the claimants to have the cases investigated, DNA testing completed. There is still a window of time to reunite the remaining living mothers with their children. But with each passing day, that window is closing. Rosie, had anyone talked to these women before? Had anyone listened to them? And were you able to get any answers? After speaking to Jack Prager and Taslima speaks to the mothers, we know straight away we have to go to TGH Netherlands and find out what they know, what they've looked into, what they've done about these allegations. I spoke to TGH Netherlands at the end of 22. Straight away they flat out deny we were never involved in any adoptions. That's their that's their baseline mm. response to all of this. But I still had a lot of questions that I wanted to be answered. One thing they did do is they directed me towards their country director. The name that we had heard repeatedly at this point, Muzum Ali Khan, and the fact that in the 1970s, when Muzum Ali Khan was the country director for Terre de Homme, Netherlands, in Bangladesh, he was also working for a charity called Beer. And just to be clear, Beer was an organisation that later got absorbed. It got merged into World Kinderun, which is the international adoption foundation that Bibi told us about. Beer were the only charity at the time who were allowed to process adoptions from Bangladesh to the Netherlands. You can draw your own conclusions from that, seemed to be what they were saying Mm. to me. But to underline that point, they said he basically had two jobs. So we knew we had to find Khan um, in order to get any answers from him about what was going on. We track him down to an affluent district of Dhaka and we get in touch. We just say we want to ask you some questions about adoptions in the 1970s. Initially, we don't hear back. And then we get confirmation that he is prepared to speak to us. So you, you never spoke to any mothers in Tongi? No. You never spoke to any mothers about enrolling their children into schools? No. That's tomorrow. In a statement to The Guardian, 
World Kindrin say that as they're currently involved in judicial proceedings brought against them by Bibi Hassanah, they were not able to comment on her allegations. A spokesperson for Terdes on Netherlands told The Guardian that allegations that local TDH Netherlands staff were, quote, involved in misleading parents to give up their children for adoption have never been substantiated. They also said they were not an adoption agency, did not run a children's home, and moreover, did not mandate staff to engage in adoption-related work. TDH Netherlands say their building in Tongi was later used by Beer, which they believe contributed to the misconception that TDH Netherlands was involved in adoptions. Nevertheless, they describe Bibi Hassanar's account as terrible and the allegations of the women in Tongi as heartbreaking. They say that since 2019, they have been working with and providing financial support to a charity that helps reunite adoptees with their relatives in Bangladesh. In a statement to The Guardian, Muslim Ali Khan denied the allegations made against him in their entirety. He said he had worked for both BIA, overseeing the intercountry adoption of children, which was not illegal, and TDH Netherlands. He says a government inquiry in 1979 found the allegations against him, quote, were false and baseless, and recorded the families as saying they had not been coerced into giving up their children, but rather had done so voluntarily for, quote, financial, social or medical reasons. A spokesperson from the Bangladesh government said, The government of Bangladesh, under the leadership of Honourable Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, is strongly committed to protecting child rights and preventing them from abuse. To read more, there are two very moving pieces on this story written by Taslima and Rosie. The first is titled, I'll Never Know Where I'm From, Plight of the Adopted Children of Bangladesh's Biringona Women. And the second one is Bibi's story, titled, My Mother Spent Her Life Trying to Find Me, The Children Who Say They Were Wrongly Taken for Adoption. You can search for both of those at theguardian.com. I'm Nasheen Iqbal, and this series was reported by Rosie Swash and Taslima Begum. This episode was produced by Natalie Khatena and Taslima Begum. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo, the executive producers were Huma Khalili, Joshua Kelly and Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back with part three tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.